Great, thank you. Well, do turn to that. It would be really helpful if you have it open as we look at it together. Uh, page 544, Psalm 3. Uh, or keep it open if you're there already. Let's pray, shall we, as we ask God to open his word to us tonight. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, the king whom you've sent for us. And as we read and listen now, by your spirit, bring these words to life, give us understanding, and may we not only know Jesus as king, but come to love and follow him with an even deeper love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I guess at the moment, Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, probably relieved to have a bit of a summer break, but she's feeling pretty much surrounded by enemies herself, isn't she, I imagine, rather like David is in this psalm, uh, what it's like to have political enemies, uh, the feeling that people are plotting against her, perhaps, undermining her authority, looking to get her maybe even deposed and replaced as Prime Minister. But of course all of us have enemies at some point in our lives, um, you know, mercifully perhaps not too many, um, but people who oppose our views or things that we do, sometimes people with opportunity and power to influence or harm us. And of course all of us also have enemies, you might call them spiritual, enemies inside our hearts as well. Not people out there, but things in here, doubts, uh, or fears, anxieties, uh, or temptations, or persistent sins that we keep falling for, things that make it harder to know God's love or to follow Christ faithfully, enemies. This psalm is about danger and enemies, um, Psalm 3 is the first of, I think it's 14, that have a little title at the top of them, tying them to a specific historical situation, the the context, the reason the psalm was composed and written. So you saw in the heading that Amy read there, Psalm 3 comes from that terrifying situation that we saw King David in, in that first reading from Samuel. David has political opponents. That story in 2 Samuel told us of Absalom, who's actually David's son, through Bathsheba, uh, the woman that he committed adultery with. And Absalom, his son, is plotting and then leading a rebellion, a coup against King David. And by the end of our reading, we saw King David effectively had to run for his life and vacate the throne, albeit temporarily. So this is a psalm, Psalm 3, in its original context, about a political coup, an attempted assassination, probably, and the danger that King David felt himself to be in. But also, by the end of the psalms, you can see David is no longer feeling in danger. David appears to have been rescued. And the mood of the psalm, doesn't it, changes hugely from verse 1 how many of my enemies, to verse 8, the Lord delivering David and blessing his people. So we're going to learn here, I think, about how the Lord protects David, but we're also going to learn about how he protects Jesus 
and ultimately in Jesus, how he protects us. Now, just a little aside here, at the end of verse 2 and two other verses, there's that little word, selah, that comes up. Um, it was on our screen, wasn't it? It didn't actually read it out loud, because if you're like me, you didn't kind of know what it was there for, did you? It's not an English word. Um, the good thing is that actually no one, the experts don't quite know what these little words salah mean at the end of certain verses in the Psalms. Most likely, I think, as the, I think the footnote says, it's a little musical term. So you know, it's for the musicians tonight, uh, had we sung that psalm, possibly it's a kind of a pause, like a kind of rest in music, to say, just pause and think about what you've just said. But actually, the three breaks that Salah makes in this psalm do break the psalm up quite nicely into three sections, so there's a good reason to pause between each one. And we'll follow those here. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, which we're going to call the king's complaint. Then verses 3 and 4, which we'll call the king's confidence. The king's complaint, the king's confidence. And then 5 to 7 and 8, uh, really is a summary at the end. 5 to 7, the king's cry. The king's complaint, the king's confidence, the king's cry. So the king's complaint, the first two verses. Here's David on the run. Um, and as he's running, he's, he's fleeing for his life. He writes this psalm and he says, How many are my foes? You can feel the anguish here. How many rise up against me? He is massively outnumbered. We saw it in the reading, the first reading, how people were gathering and adding to the rebellion against David, following Absalom. He says, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. You know, God's abandoned David, God's no longer with David. God's moved on to the next king, Absalom. He is completely surrounded by people who are baying for his blood. He must feel rather like a fox being chased by the hounds. And each phrase builds the sense of terror. Um, He says, my enemies are numerous, and then they're rising up against him, and then they are cursing him. Strong language, abandoned by God. And that story the background into Samuel. We saw, didn't we, how Absalom and his followers were growing against him. If you read on in 2 Samuel 16, another character there appears called Shimei, who's one of Absalom, the rebellion's followers. Um, He's a member of the house of Saul, the family of Saul, the king that David replaced on the throne. And it's quite a great story. He follows David along the road as he's kind of walking, running for his life. And Shimei's there, not just throwing curses at him, but throwing stones at him. And it's quite unnerving, isn't it, I imagine, to be being chased by all these armies and having someone cursing and throwing stones at you. And he follows along the road, uh, saying, effectively, David, you've got blood on your hands. This is God's judgment on you. And David, although... The accusation's probably false, actually. If you read 2 Samuel, David meekly submits and and accepts, maybe this is God's judgment for what I've done. For uh, the blood I have shed and for my adultery with Bathsheba. But despite that, David knows he is nonetheless God's chosen king. God's installed him on his throne um, in Jerusalem. And so he makes his complaint as if to say, Help, Lord. 
Why is this happening? Why are these enemies against me? This was not what you promised to your chosen king. And he's right about that. We saw last time in Psalm 2 that people would indeed conspire against the king, against the Lord and his anointed king. Even though God has installed his king on Mount Zion, um, on his throne, people would rebel. So David perhaps shouldn't have been so surprised at what's happening to him, at the danger he's facing. Because God said that would happen to his king. But the really striking thing with this psalm and many other psalms is the parallel here between King David's experience and Jesus' experience. Between King David and Supreme King Jesus. From early in Jesus' ministry, Mark tells us in his gospel that Jewish leaders plotted to kill him. A rebellion was going on against the kingdom of Jesus. And even as he was hanging in pain on the cross, being crucified, forsaken by God to pay the penalty for our sin, there were people then walking by, a little bit like Shimei, saying, he trusted in God, let God now deliver him if he wants him to be claimed as God's son. People were cursing Jesus on the cross, just as Shimei was cursing David. The parallels between David and Jesus are so striking. It's almost like Jesus' life and experience of rejection and danger, and even death, is David's experience, but writ large now. And yet, unlike David, Jesus, remember, is being chased, hounded, put on trial, cursed, flogged, executed, despite being totally innocent. He'd done nothing to provoke that treatment, that rejection. Hated by the Pharisees, betrayed by Judas, given a sham trial by the Romans, and yet willingly going through death for us. To pay the penalty for us. Even though we had been his enemies. We'd been the ones shouting for his death. We'd been part of the sinners who wanted nothing to do with him. Because that's the irony of this psalm, isn't it? Uh, We'll get to how we can speak these words of confidence as Christ's people. But let's remember, first of all, had it not been for Christ we would still be his enemies. We'd still be the rebels. Just like Absalom and his friends were with King David. We were there, wanting Jesus crucified. But by his death, Jesus took our penalty for our rebellion, and he made us, when we were still his enemies, children of God, through grace. Before we move on to our next point, let's just remember that King Jesus... As, as he sings these words, as he sang these words, heading towards his execution, the many enemies against me. As Jesus made that complaint, uh, still today Jesus has many enemies. Many that we perhaps speak to about our faith will listen and explore and come to faith. But many also will not listen 
and will be hostile and will reject the good news of King Jesus. There's something in the human spirit, isn't there, which loves our independence and doesn't want to come under the reign of Jesus. We're by nature rebels. Even in churches, people sometimes sacrifice um, obedience to scripture to our own modern agendas in the name of what we call freedom. We don't want to hear what King Jesus is saying to us. We think we know better. We think we could form a better kingdom than the kingdom of King Jesus. So today, we should expect that our culture, our world, will be hostile to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of Jesus. That's how they treated David. It's how they treated Jesus. And they still do today. That's the king's complaint. Verse 3, the king's confidence. And there's a massive change of mood, isn't there, in verse 3? Many of my enemies ranged against me, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. What a change. Do you notice that a lot of the words in this psalm are military words. The word shield here in verse 3, the defensive weapon of the soldier. Uh, the word for, for how many are amassing against me, we've already seen, and enemies, those are army words. How great are the armies surrounding me? That's the sense of this psalm. The word for deliverance that comes three times in this psalm in different ways, it's the word you could translate victory. It's a, a battle, a battle won sort of word. And later on, we'll see David ask God to slap his enemies on the cheek and break their teeth. Again, not the actions of love and affirmation, but the actions of warfare. So here's a military psalm about a king in danger. And here is David recalling from his own experience, it seems, that the Lord has been a shield to him in the past. As he fought lions attacking his sheep when he was a shepherd boy as he fought Goliath in that famous conflict, as he later fought many battles in becoming and being king of Israel. Every time he's saying, you have been a shield to me. You've been the reason that I've survived, that I'm here. It's your protection. He says, God, you are my glory. See that again in verse 3. Uh, the word glory, that probably means here the sense of weight, the word glory in, in the Bible, it's a weight word. It's about significance. And probably it means, Lord, I've known your weighty presence at me through all of my trials. The weight of your presence has been there, as if to say to my enemies, hands off, this David, he belongs to me. You've been my shield, you've been my glory. That's God's protection. That's the king's confidence. I wonder if you saw a couple of weeks ago when Donald Trump came to visit the UK, the size of the presidential cavalcade. It rose of these black uh, limousines bringing his bodyguards. Uh, and then did you see his car? They call it the Beast, don't they? Uh, great big nine-ton black Cadillac. Apparently it has a sort of bomb-proof shield underneath, 
um, and bomb-proof side panels and bulletproof glass. It's even on its own fire extinguisher system in the boot. And, like this, rocket-propelled grenades on board. Have you got one of those? It's something else, isn't it? Quite a car. Now, I don't know if Donald feels he has lots of enemies um, or if he feels he has more enemies than King David had. But even Donald Trump's beast, David is saying, is nothing compared to the safety and security he experiences from knowing the Lord. You have been a shield and my glory. And the Lord also hears, doesn't just shield him, hears him, verse 4. David calls out, and the Lord hears. He says, you've heard me from your holy mountain. David was saved, not by his military genius, not by the size of his army. He's on the run, after all. But he's saved, even from Absalom's coup, by the Lord, by his sovereign, protecting hand. But again, can you see here the way that the experience of confidence of King David just makes us think even more of the confidence of King Jesus. Because Jesus faced even greater enemies than David. He faced not only physical danger, but the greater threat of evil and the weight of human sin weighing down on him under God's judgment, the Father's judgment on the cross. He faced all of that. And we know from the Gospels that as he hangs on the cross under the weight of sin, battling with evil for us, overcoming death for us, he prays, do you remember? He prays, into your hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. That's the confidence of Jesus. That's the trust King Jesus has in the majesty and the mercy and the protection of his Father. I call out to the Lord, David says, and Jesus echoes on the cross. I call out to the Lord, and he answers. There's King Jesus, going confidently through rejection and suffering and even death, entrusting himself to the Father and to his justice. That's the confidence that King Jesus has, and that we as God's people have not because of who we are, but because we are in Christ, in King Jesus, his confidence can be our confidence. Last week at the Keswick Convention, we heard a pastor from Singapore talk about the persecution of the church in China when communist rule came in in 1949. And he described how the Western missionaries that had all gone to China, feeling called to take the gospel to China, all had to leave the country when communist rule came in. They They were kicked out. Uh, And they had to go and live in other countries that they hadn't really chosen to go to in the Far East, to places like Malaysia and Korea and Singapore. And he went on to describe how under communism in China, the church has experienced a far greater growth than almost any other part of the world in the providence of Almighty God. And how the missionaries who were sent to other countries by being evicted ended up planting churches and training up missionaries in those other countries. And how, when uh, communism opened up in in China in more recent years, missionaries are now going back into China from those other countries because they've been converted and trained to go. God is a shield 
to his people when they're persecuted, when they're outlawed, a shield against which no human spiritual power can prevail. Persecution will not overcome King Jesus and his people, nor will doubt or Western atheist skepticism. Jesus trusted in his Father. He had the King's confidence, and in him we share that confidence. So I think we should encourage each other to be grateful, always more grateful than ever, for the grateful, confident trust of Jesus, who went even to death for us, trusting in his Father. We remember that trust and that faithfulness in the communion, the bread and wine that we share tonight, as he entrusted himself in death to his Father for us. I think we should pray, too, for that confidence that Jesus had to be planted in our hearts, too. As we face a hostile world sometimes, as we face temptation and evil, Paul says in Ephesians, take up the shield of faith to extinguish the darts of the evil one. Temptation, doubts, fears, secularism, even death will all be defeated, extinguished by the shield of God and the gospel. So that's why the king's complaint, we saw, turns quickly, doesn't it, into the king's confidence, because he's known the Lord as his shield. Thirdly, lastly, we see the king's cry from verse 5. David's singing in verse 5 about how vulnerable he has felt. He says, I, I lie down to sleep. And probably the sense here is, I lie, asleep, I lie down to sleep not sure if I'm safe, not sure if I'll ever wake again, if enemies will get me in the night. Now, then he says, and then I wake. I realize that you've protected me again. I'm safe. This night will not be my last. He wakes alive. He lives because the Lord sustains him. And so he says, out of my experience of your constant protection, I will not fear. Though armies of thousands assail me on every side. Isn't that a great verse to remember? I will not fear. Though armies of thousands assail me on every side. He's got armies gathering to kill him. But he's learning to trust in the Lord. And not to fear man. Mother Teresa was a great servant of the poor because of her faith. And she was also no stranger to the feeling sometimes that God had abandoned her. When she felt God far off, she used to keep her faith strong by saying, never doubt in the darkness what you've seen in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what you've seen in the light. That's what David is experiencing here, isn't it? He's seen the Lord protecting him against his enemies, and so he won't fear even though they may be drawn up against him. It doesn't mean the enemies aren't real. We can't just wish sin and evil and danger and fear away. These things are real for David, they're real for Jesus, they're real for us. And that's why he then cries out, doesn't he, in verse 7, for the Lord to deliver him. He says, I, I don't fear but I also don't do nothing. I cry out 
for deliverance. This is the king's cry. Arise, Lord. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Again, you can see, can't you, the the forceful military image here arising uh, to a word that comes in the book of Numbers. Whenever God's people moved camp and the Ark of the Covenant led them into their next battle, uh, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord. And of course, breaking someone's jaw, striking them and breaking their teeth are violent pictures, aren't they? Again, we think, well, what is this doing on the lips of David, let alone of Jesus? Striking on the cheek in that culture was a a way of shaming your enemy. Showing that you're not afraid of them, that you're not defeated by them. Breaking teeth, it could mean uh, literally making someone toothless, uh, taking their weapons away, or it could simply mean silencing them so they can't curse you anymore as David was being cursed by Shimei. So how do we read these today? How do we kind of pray verses like these about breaking the teeth of the wicked? Well, in the Bible, the military warfare of the Old Testament with flesh and blood enemies usually transforms in the New Testament, in Christ, into the spiritual battle that God's people face with sin and evil and death. So David's example of crying for victory from the Lord and for triumph over his enemies, for his enemies to be defeated, is even more fully realised, not in the violence of Jesus, but in the victory of Jesus over sin and death on the cross. The spiritual defeat that God has accomplished in Christ. So Colossians 1 says that he made a spectacle of the powers and authorities, that means the forces of evil, being victorious over, conquering over them through the cross. So this psalm, it's not telling us, is it, to go out there and ask God to break the teeth of those at work that we find difficult, enemies at school, But it shows us, doesn't it, how Jesus overcame his enemies, his greatest enemies, our enemies, sin and evil and death on the cross for us. So what does this victory mean for us today? As we've seen, the great enemies that we face as God's people, that Christ faced as God's chosen king, are the spiritual ones of sin and evil and death itself, the greatest enemy. It's against all of those that human beings, we are powerless, aren't we? We can struggle a bit with sin, but we often lose out. We can fight evil, but we aren't very successful. And well, what about death itself? Before I became a church minister, I was a doctor, and in both areas of work, I have often needed to be at the bedside of people that were dying, struggling with sickness, and also of those who've died. Many of the time I've stood at the bedside of, of someone that's died and felt the weight of death, how final it is, that that person really has gone. They are no more. 
And in the face of, of that finality, and I'm sure we, we all know this from experience of, of death and mortality that we've had, we say, don't we, is there nothing we can do? Is there nothing we can do to reverse, to overcome the power of this thing, death? Of course, humanly, medicine can do great things. It can reverse sickness. It can postpone mortality sometimes. But even medicine cannot overcome death any more than it overcomes sin or evil. And yet when Christ died, the psalm is saying, God raised him in victory, in deliverance, the word of this psalm, defeating death forever, rescuing Jesus from the jaws of death, so that for everyone who comes to him, death is defeated, sin is overcome, evil is destroyed, releasing all of us in Christ from death's power, from sin's grip. He's opened the gate. He's won the victory. So if you and I struggle, as we do, don't we, with the power of of different temptations, with sins that, that just seem sometimes so persistent and powerful, you and I need to draw strength, don't we? Not from ourselves, because we are weak in the face of these things, but from Christ, from God the Father, whose power has won the victory. Broken the teeth of the evil one. Struck death on the cheek and humiliated it before the risen Christ. Cry out, as David does, as Jesus did, for deliverance. And he will hear and he will answer. And here's just one more thought. If you have friends, neighbours, colleagues, family who don't yet know Christ, as maybe some of us here this evening, do you and I really know, do we recognise deep down how helpless any person is, utterly helpless in the face of sin and evil and ultimately of death itself? if they're not in Christ. He is the only saviour, the only rescuer, the only deliverer. So let's pray for them. Let's pray urgently for them that God will open their eyes to the rescuer, to the king, and his victory. That his cry from the cross and the empty grave may be one that they hear and echo in victory in him. Why not pray for them? Why not give them a gospel, perhaps, to read, to explore the story of our rescuer, our deliverer, for themselves? Invite them to service here, perhaps, in the next few months, that God may deliver them as he delivers all who are in Christ the King. Because they said, didn't they, in, in David's day, Shimei and the others, the mockers, that God wouldn't deliver him. But God did rescue David. They said that God wouldn't help Jesus as he went to the cross. But God did. He raised him. And they say God won't help us today, don't they? That he's a fiction. But he did in Christ. He still does in Christ. And when Christ returns, then our salvation will be complete. 
Let's pray. So we thank you, Lord, for the victory you've won. We thank you for David and his confidence in you, in his own trial, in his own time of danger, that you were a shield to him. And we thank you that in King Jesus, you are also a shield around about us, your people today. May we be those that trust in Jesus to be our rescuer and deliverer. And as we remember in the bread and wine this evening, his death and resurrection for us, fill us afresh with confidence and courage to live and speak of the victory he's won. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.